great attendance for a day where you're supposed to be in bed sleeping still, right? You're all supposed to miss church this morning. I don't know what the other small groups were like this morning, but ours was really light, and so I was thinking, man, it's going to be a low, low Sunday. And it's a little lower than normal, but that's a pretty good day for uh, Spring Ahead Sunday, which is always one of those dreaded, dreaded weeks of the year. We all fuss about it. But it comes around every spring, and so we just got to make the most of it. So, man, I'm glad to see you this morning. Welcome to Red Lane. Let me just offer my welcome to you. It's glad to see you this morning. Grateful for, uh, for Jordan, uh, praying through our offering. Jordan, what he didn't say is, uh, is MK. He's a missionary's kid. He grew up with parents that are missionaries and served in Kenya and Uganda and places in East Central Africa. And he's just a, a great, great man, one of our great leaders uh, here, him and his wife Mariah are fairly new to our church family, and he has jumped right in. Both of them, he serves as a small group leader, and just really, really love uh, this young couple and what the Lord is doing in them and through them. Grab your Bible, if you will, and take it and open it to Luke chapter nine this morning. As I mentioned, how uh, much I, I love Jordan and uh, Mariah, and just how God is moving in their lives and hearts, and how He's raising Jordan up as a great leader, a great small group leader. Uh, I want to ask a question about leadership this morning. What makes a leader great? Well, what are the characteristics that, that, that bring about what we would describe or, or call greatness? You know, I think we can all spot it. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're a, a student that's in school in here or if you're a, uh, an adult who's been in the workplace for years. I think we look at people and the, the folks that we're under, the leaders that we're under, we can recognize and differentiate between what is great leadership and what is poor leadership. And so what is that? What's that characteristic that, that we would say is great? For me, I believe it comes down to just simply how a leader genuinely shows care and concern for the people that he or she is leading. came across an interesting article this week. The, the magazine that I found this article in is called Incorporated Magazine. It, Articles titled this, Eight Critical Things Every Great Leader Remembers. In this article, Kevin Dom argues that every great leader keeps the following things in mind so, so that their teams are happy, but not just happy, productive. Here's some eight things. Here are the eight things he mentions, uh, things that great leaders remember. Number one is kindness. A great leader remembers to be kind and to show kindness to those that are being led. Number two is respect. Number three is patience. Number four is humor, which I found interesting that, that one of the things that this, this article is laying out as far as what a great leader will remember to offer to his or her team is humor. Humor is good for the soul. Humor is good medicine for the heart. Number five he mentions is truth. How important it is to speak true to our, uh, uh, the people on our teams. Number six is encouragement. Number seven is gratitude, and then he ends it with the, 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 the thing to remember being hope, to give hope to those that are under you, hope to those that you are leading. And so kindness and respect, patience, humor, truth, encouragement, gratitude, and hope are things that every leader, if they're going to be great and lead people to do great things, ought to remember, according to this article. You know, as you think about those eight qualities, those eight attributes, all of them are about care and concern. All of them speak of a, a leader showing empathy and concern and love and, and uh, 
deep care for the people that are under them in their leadership. And so that is what makes leaders great. I've been on some level a, a leader for many years, and I've read many books on leadership, and then just the, the, uh, the, the natural learning as you go because you're in a position of leadership. And so what I've learned over all of these years is that leadership comes down to one thing, focusing on people. Focus on, on the people that you're leading. Focusing on the people that your team is, is seeking to engage. And so when you think about great leaders, great leaders know people's names. Great leaders care about what's going on in the lives of those people that they're leading. And great leaders look out for their good. It's not about your good as the leader. It's about the team's good and welfare. And so they put others' needs before their own. Well, we have a great leader in the Bible. In fact, I would say this. History's greatest leader is not some of the generals that we know from history or the prime ministers or dictators or presidents or kings. The greatest leader that history's ever known is who? It's Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us that Jesus was a leader who showed kindness, who demonstrated patience. He's a leader that offered hope to those that he was leading. You see, Jesus, the Bible tells us, came not to be served, but to serve. His disciples, however, as we're learning, walking through the Gospel of Luke, were slow to learn from his example. We've already seen in, in Luke's Gospel that the disciples argued among themselves about who was the greatest, right? Can you imagine being on Jesus' team, and, and he's the one who did not come to be served, but to serve, and, and yet the, the ones who are coming along with them are arguing over Who's the best? Man, I've got better gifts than you. Man, did you see how God used me the other day? I'm the best of the 12. I'm the top of the line. I'm sitting in the first chair. They were slow to learn from Jesus' example. They had become proud about their status. They had become proud about their abilities. They seem, I think, to give themselves an elite status. Man, I am the Navy SEAL, SEAL Team 6 of Jesus' followers. That's how they viewed themselves as they journeyed and traveled with Jesus. But as we look at Jesus, we see that true greatness is the antithesis of pride. It's the antithesis of elitism. Last week, we discovered that the believer's attitude greatly impacts that believer's effectiveness for the gospel and with the gospel. As we move to our next passage this morning, we will again see Jesus' great leadership on display. We're going to see his eye for people, his concern for people. And my prayer is, is that from these verses we're going to look at this morning, that we're going to discover and see that the believer's view of the kingdom also greatly impacts their effectiveness with the gospel. In other words, having the right perspective and seeing the world, seeing people through the eyes and through the lens of Jesus Christ, namely the kingdom. What does the kingdom have to say about how we live and how we go about our lives as a follower of Jesus Christ? And so Luke chapter 9, let's begin reading in verse 49. I'm going to connect two passages of Scripture that you may think don't fit together, but I think they do. I think they tell us uh, two sides of the same coin. Verse 49, Luke says this, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. 
When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. I think Luke is kind of holding back in that verse a little bit. If you understand the magnitude of what they're uh, aspiring to do, I got to believe that Luke is kind of holding back some, some emphasis on what that rebuke looked like and felt like. Verse 56 says, and they went on to another village. Now, obviously, as we are walking through the Gospel of Luke, and here in chapter 9, specifically over the last several weeks, we have learned that the disciples did not have a whole lot of love for one another, right? They're arguing between themselves as to who is the greatest. In our verses this morning that we're looking at, Luke is recording for us that their lack of love didn't just involve the 12, it's extended out to those who are believers, but not a part of their group. And then it went a step further. It shows their absolute hatred for a group of people known as the Samaritans. And so these disciples did not exemplify the love and compassion, the grace and the mercy of the man that they were following. Instead, they exemplified their own natural human sinfulness. Verse 49, we see that these disciples had seen a man casting out demons. Now, what we know here is that this is firsthand knowledge. They had seen this man doing this. And so it's not a report. It's not rumor. It's not second, third, fourth-hand information. No, these disciples saw this man casting out demons, and because he's not a part of their group, they decide to stop him. They come and say, hey, you can't do that. You can't use the name of Jesus. You're not one of us. You're not following with us as we follow Jesus. So we need you to cease all operations of demon exorcism because you're not part of us, right? And so they come and they brag to Jesus about that. This man that we need to see here was doing the right thing with the right motive. Luke is giving us no inclination that he was trying to make a name for himself. Neither do the other gospel writers. But instead, this man had the right motive and he's doing the right thing. We could say it this way. This man was doing kingdom work. This man was engaged in gospel work as he's casting out demons, as he's seeking to bring freedom, spiritual freedom to men and women and children in bondage. To the demonic. This is good gospel work. It's work that is taking place for the betterment of people. And so why would the disciples want to stop it? That's a question as we read this text. We need, to, we need to come to that conclusion. What would make the disciples, specifically John here, say stop what you're doing? I believe it's because they had a faulty view of the kingdom. That their perspective of the kingdom was flawed. We move to verse 51 and we see a, a major turning point here in Luke's gospel. We're clued in here when it says that Jesus began to set his face toward Jerusalem. We're seeing that there's a change in Luke's gospel. So far, Jesus has been traveling through largely the Galilee area. He's been doing miracles, casting out demons, healing the sick, uh, raising the dead. He's been preaching the gospel. He's been forming a team. 
right? These 12 men who haven't yet got it, they're, they're arguing and jockeying for position. So he's been doing all of that for uh, a couple years, and now it's time for him to begin to move toward Jerusalem. So over the next 10 chapters, meaning the next three years for us, I figured I'd get more laughs with that, uh, but we didn't get a whole lot of claps earlier. You guys lost an hour of sleep this morning. Understand, coffee is right back here. If you need to get it, you will not offend me whatsoever. But over the next 10 chapters, what we're going to see are several different allusions to this journey moving toward Jerusalem. Here Luke makes it clear that Jerusalem is the destination and what awaits Jesus in Jerusalem is everything involved of him being taken up. His betrayal, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. Amen? So we're going to see that unfold as Jesus is now going to move toward Jerusalem. Now, obviously, the 12 and the other disciples believed they understood what was to take place with their teacher. But like Peter, they overestimated themselves. See, they missed Jesus' simplest warnings. He just told them in the previous text that he will be betrayed and killed. And they, they're missing that. And so they, they're questioning Jesus. Multiple times they've already questioned Jesus. Peter even pulled him aside to rebuke him. So they failed to catch the greater implications of Jesus and his mission. Along with that, I believe they misunderstood the teachings on the coming kingdom. I believe they, they miss the fact that love and mercy, forgiveness and grace were, were concepts of the kingdom, concepts of the gospel, that they were the characteristics of the man that they were following. Therefore, they should have become characteristics of their own life. But what we see in this text is them not demonstrating love, mercy, forgiveness, and grace. You see, what were they willing to do to the Samaritans according to this passage? Incinerate a whole village. Can you imagine that as a follower of Jesus Christ, having the disposition about yourself that when you went and you tried to share and proclaim the gospel to somebody and they said, no, I want nothing to do with that. And you kind of kicked the dust off your heels. You walked away, called fire down from heaven and incinerated the home. That's not very Christian, right? I mean, that's kind of an understatement. That's not Christ-like. But these men... James and John were willing to do that. The verses call, these verses here call believers away from their natural tendency to focus inward. And I believe they fo force us to a new perspective. I believe it's a call to look outside of yourself. Last week we were saying, or the passage was saying, hey, look at me as the disciples jockeyed for position. I'm the best. I'm the greatest. I'm the baddest one on the team here for Team Jesus. Look at me. And Jesus is rebuking that. And now in this next passage of Scripture, and what we're seeing in these two stories, is almost like Luke is leading us to say this. Let's look at them. Let's look at the Samaritans of this world. Let's look at the other believers who are not part of our tribe, who are not part of our group, who are not part of our church, and let's see them as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so this morning, I just want to simply speak to the subject of let's look at them. Because as followers of Jesus, we need to view the kingdom of God through the eyes of Jesus because the believer's view of the kingdom, our view of the kingdom, will greatly affect the way we handle the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's two truths that I want to share with you this morning. Two truths that I believe 
we need to recognize. Here's the first one. The kingdom is greater than the tribe. The kingdom is greater than the tribe. That's what we see in verses 49 and 50. Specifically, verse 49 tells us that the 12 attempted to prevent a man from doing the work of the kingdom. And what we see here is that this man was not part of their tribe. He was not part of their group. He was not traveling with Jesus at this point. Now, we know nothing other than what we see here in these verses. We don't know if this man had been with Jesus before, maybe as a fringe type of person. We don't know that. I would tend to believe he's probably not been tracking along with the disciples because it seems like they don't know who this man is. But what we do know is that at some point he had believed on Jesus because he's doing the work of the kingdom. And yet they are hindering him from doing that because he's not of their tribe. John's description of how they respond to this man, what, when does it come? It comes on the heels of Jesus' rebuke over their argument of who's the greatest. So it tells us that they still have not learned the lessons of humility and service. And so Jesus' response to John was both a prohibition and a principle. It's a prohibition because he says, do not stop him, right? Don't stop him. I prohibit you from stopping him. It's a principle because he gives the following. The one who's not against you is for you. Right? We don't need to see this tribal bickering back and forth. We don't need to see this tribal rivalry. If they're not fighting against you, you guys are going in the same direction. They're not an enemy. They're an ally. That's what Jesus is saying here. So he gives a prohibition. He offers a principle. Jesus here wants his followers to exemplify an inclusive heart rather than the exclusive heart. Now, the gospel is inclusive, right? What do we mean by that? Paul says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What does whosoever mean? Whosoever, right? It's pretty clear in the Greek. It's really clear in the English. Anybody, red, yellow, black, and white, they're all what? Precious in his sight. That's what our old uh, children's song used to say. So every person of every ethnicity, of every language, of every economic status, educational status, and anything else you want to throw in there is readily accepted by the Lord. Whosoever shall come. So he's calling these disciples, he's calling you and I to have an inclusive heart when it comes to the kingdom. So the kingdom tent is bigger than these disciples saw it. You, you ever get to that point in your life? I know we all do. But we just get closed in and we can only see what's right around us. Really inward focus. Sometimes it happens in the church. Often it happens in the church. Where we get so closed-minded, so, so inward-focused, so narrow-minded that we can't see past our local church. Or we can't see past our, uh, our state convention or our denomination. It's just us four and no more. And we think we're the only ones going to heaven. I think that's what's happening here. So while these disciples might have been jealous for Jesus and themselves... Jesus is not threatened. There are many other examples of this unthreatened attitude in the Bible. For instance, in Numbers chapter 11, a man by the name of Joshua who succeeded Moses hears that there are two elders in the camp of Israel who are preaching and gaining prominence. In Numbers chapter 11, verse 29, Joshua comes 
And it reveals his heart and his jealousy for Moses. And Moses responds like this. Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Moses wasn't threatened in the, at all, in the, in the least, about other people, Eldad and Medad specifically, gaining prominence within the community, gaining prominence within the leadership structure of Israel. No, Moses rejoiced in the fact that they would stand and preach, stand and prophesy, stand and speak for the Lord God. The Apostle Paul also demonstrated this inclusive, non-threatening heart, non-threatened heart. You remember in Philippians chapter 1, Paul begins to talk about how he's there in Rome, he's in prison, and he learns about men who were using his incarceration for their own benefit to kind of prop themselves up, to give them a platform saying, yeah, Paul, we don't need to, to, to focus so much on him. Look where it got him. And so they're using his incarceration to kind of to kind of bolster and uplift their preaching platform. What does Paul say in Philippians chapter 1, verse 18? He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and then in that I rejoice. Paul wasn't concerned. Did it hurt him? Sure. Did it hurt his heart that, that perhaps friends, definitely colleagues of his, would use his incarceration to bolster their platform and profile sure it hurt him but when it came down to the gospel the gospel is still being proclaimed and that was where his eyes were it was about the kingdom of god not the kingdom of paul we also could mention how jonathan was willing to take a step back for david if you know the story there in first samuel chapter 18 and what's going on david was the man that god had anointed as the next king King Saul was still on the throne, and Jonathan was his son, his heir. And Jonathan and David were best friends. Jonathan and David loved each other like brothers. And rather than jockeying for position, rather than holding on to his, his heirship, the fact that he would be the next king in Israel, Jonathan understood the Lord had spoken, and he committed himself to do everything necessary to ensure that David took the throne. Then there's John the Baptist who responded to Jesus' ascension, that his ministry was gaining uh, prominence within the area there around the Jordan River. And he said in John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. He and these others all were willing to set aside their personal desire for prominence and surrender to God's kingdom plan. And today, I believe we need to learn from these examples, and we need to remember that the kingdom is greater than the tribe. You see, as I said earlier, we may think that our church is the kingdom of God. But let me tell you this morning, it is just a small fraction of God's greater kingdom. We may take a little larger view and we may say, well, our denomination, I mean, we're Southern Baptists. We're the largest Protestant denomination on the face of the earth. Look at us. We may boast of 16 million members today. You can't find 12 million of them. That's probably a true statement. I know it used to be true. It may be actually lower than that these days. And so we don't need to boast in how great we are. I love being a Southern Baptist because of our commitment to the gospel, our commitment to the inerrancy and authority of scripture, our cooperative work together that we as 45,000 plus churches pool our resources together to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, planting churches 
and reaching those who've never heard the name of Jesus. But I in no way, and we as a church in no way should ever think that we've got a market share on the kingdom of God. No, one of the beautiful, wonderful things uh, that you get to experience as you go overseas or even as you work through our North American Mission Board here on the continent of America is that the kingdom of God is bigger than the Southern Baptist Convention. And you get to lock arms with brothers and sisters that don't look like you, they don't talk like you, but they're praising the same Jesus you are. And you get to see the kingdom of God is bigger than what we can see right here in Powhatan, Virginia. It's going to be a day when we enter heaven and some of us are going to be really, really surprised as to all who are there. You mean there's some Catholics that got in the kingdom of God? I didn't think these Episcopalians were going to get in here. Methodists, they sprinkle people, right? They don't even immerse them. How are they in heaven? Presbyterians, non-denominational people, they even believe the Bible. I'm kidding with that. I'm just but that's how we think sometimes, right? And that's just American denominations. And that's just a small little footprint of American denominations. But you go overseas, and there's all kinds of others. You know what's going to be in heaven one day when we get there? People from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation glorifying the Lamb of God. That's what we're going to see. And so Jesus has this perspective of the kingdom, and the disciples have not yet figured it out. And so today for us as Christ followers, we need to be open to working with other believers of similar faith and practice. We need to lock arms. We need to understand that we can do more together than we can do on our own. None of us can do the work of the kingdom on our own. None of us can reach our county on our own. Think about it. We have 250 seats in this room. There are 30 30,000 plus people in the county of Powhatan. You know how many services we'd have to do a week to handle that many people? I would never go home. It would just be service after service after service after service, seven days a week, never ending, to be able to accommodate the number of people we have in our county. Can we reach Powhatan County ourselves? Absolutely not. Can we reach Virginia? <laughs> no way. Can we reach America by ourselves? No. Can we reach the world with, with the gospel by ourselves? No. But we can do a lot together. We can lock arms and we can support, we can pray for, and we can encourage brothers and sisters that may not look like us, maybe like this man who's casting out demons, but he's not following right after the 12, but he's doing the work of the kingdom. The kingdom is greater than the tribe. When we think about tribalism, this is a reality we need to recognize because of how often it overshadows the greater kingdom. This, this loss of per perspective can also lead us to prejudice, can lead us even to hatred, which brings us to a second truth that I want us to see. Here it is. The kingdom tempers justice with mercy. Look at verse 51 through 56. As I'm kind of walking through what's going on in this passage. I just want you to keep your eyes there. What we're seeing here, what we're confronted with here is ethnic tension that was present between the Jews and the Samaritans. Some of you probably understand this tension, but if you don't understand the tension, let me, let me help you this morning. Where did this tension come from? Why would James and John, who are sons of thunder, sons of Zebedee, why would they, that's what Zebedee means, thunder, 
Why would these men come to Jesus and in response to the Samaritans' rejection to Jesus even entering the village, why would they dare to say, you want me to call fire down from heaven? It's because they hated the Samaritans. Why would they hate the Samaritans? It goes back hundreds of years before this. 722 B.C., a a nation known as Assyria came in and conquered the ten northern tribes and moved many of them out And the ones who stayed intermarried with the Assyrians. And so what you have taking place is an intermingling of two nations that resulted in a nation known as Samaria, the Samaritans. And so these are Jewish half-breeds. And when the southern tribes were conquered by Babylon and carted away and then in exile for 70 years, when they began to make their way back to the homeland of Palestine... The Samaritans came and wanted to reclaim their land as well. But because they couldn't track their lineage being uh, intermingled with Assyrians, and the fact that they were intermingled with Assyrians meant that the true Jews, the uh, pure Jews, from the blood standpoint, rejected them, right? And so the Samaritans, in reverse, rejected the Jews. They reciprocated that. The the Jews considered them half-breeds, religious apostates, and the Samaritans responded in a like manner. They set up a rival temple, a rival religious system on Mount Gerizim. It rivaled the temple in Jerusalem. And so they were pitted against each other religiously. The Jews even went so far as to publicly curse the Samaritans in their synagogues. And listen to this. Pray daily that the Samaritans would not enter eternity. Jews prayed for them to go to hell because they were considered apostate. And so you can imagine if someone's praying for you to go to hell, you'd probably pray for them to go to hell, right? And so there's this back and forth of, we want you to go to hell, right? That's not a good situation. The hate between these two tribes was real and its role. Therefore, it should not at all be surprising to us as we read that the Samaritans reject Jesus. We also should not be super shocked that James and John offer to incinerate them if Jesus wants it. These are sons of thunder. They're dead serious about their offer. They're living up to the family name because they hated Samaritans and the rejection of Jesus was highly offensive. They were willing to incinerate them. They so loved and so wanted to protect the honor of Jesus that they would have taken great joy and pleasure in calling fire down from heaven to incinerate them. Now, I stop here and I just ask the question, why would they think that they could call fire down from heaven? Thoughts never entered my mind, right? Now, I've got enemies, you've got enemies, right? All of us have people who don't like us. I've never once walked away thinking, Lord, if you want me to call fire down from heaven, I will gladly do that. Now, I probably would want to. I'll just be honest. There's some times in my life, just like you, where you're so upset, so hurt by what somebody's done to you, you wish that you could call fire down from heaven. But I've never thought that I have the ability to do that. But these men did. What was it that led them to believe that? The only thing I can think of is because they had just been on the mountainside, and who was there? Elijah. What did Elijah do? Mount Carmel. Called fire down from heaven. Burnt the sacrifice up. Proved that God is the one true God over Baal and Asherah. And he then killed the prophets of both of those idols. 
And so perhaps because they had been up on the mountain with Moses and Elijah, they thought that they had this elite ability, having been in the presence of a great prophet, to emulate what he was doing. And so their jealousy for Jesus blurred their vision of the kingdom of God and what the Lord would want to do. Luke here intentionally tells us that Jesus rebuked them and that they left to go to another village. You know what I find significant and what I also see is not a coincidence is that as we move past Jesus' crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and then move to Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. The gospel comes to Jerusalem. People from all the world, all over the world who were there heard the gospel, believed. 3,000 are saved, added to the church. Then church continues to grow. Persecution begins to break out. The gospel is now going to move just as Jesus said it would, right? Acts 1.8. As Jesus is ascending to the Father, he says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Where? Samaria. Persecution forces the church out of Jerusalem, down the mountain, north to Samaria. And so the, first, the second great gospel movement is in Samaria, the very area that rejected Jesus just a few weeks before. You think that's coincidence? No, I think that's the heart of the Lord Jesus and the view of his kingdom that he wants everyone to come to a saving, redemptive knowledge of Jesus Christ. So, what if today we acted like James and John and called fire down from heaven? That would be very good, right? But what if God acted like that? To us. Here's a village that said no to Jesus, and if Jesus would have allowed James and John to call fire down from heaven, they would have never had another opportunity to hear the gospel and to be saved. I don't know that it's the same village, but the Samaritans had a great gospel movement in that whole area. So I'm just going to throw them in there and say that it's very possible that this particular village came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. What if Jesus had allowed them to incinerate these people? They would have never come to be a part of the kingdom. This morning, what if when you first heard the gospel or the 10th time you heard the gospel or the 100th time you heard the gospel and in all of those times you've rejected Jesus, what if he had incinerated you? It would have been just because you deserve it. You're sinful, right? You've all sinned, the Bible says, and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all failed to live up to his holy standard. We're all condemned in our sin, dead in our sin. So it would have been a just incineration, but it wouldn't have been merciful or gracious. And so Jesus, just like he did with these Samaritans, has given you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. But that doesn't mean it's an infinite opportunity. You see, there is coming a day when every person who continues to reject the name of Jesus and reject his offer of forgiveness, who willingly deny him lordship over their life, they will experience what their sin demands and deserves, and that is eternal separation in a place called hell where they will for all eternity be condemned and receive the condemnation of their sin, the justice that goes with that. That will happen. Make no bones about it. But that day is not today. Today, there's mercy. You see, the kingdom 
tempers justice. We have a tendency to say, man, especially when things are just egregious in our culture, right? When something just such is an affront to the to the word of God and the grace of God, we have a tendency to be jealous of that, and rightly so, and say, God, may your justice reign here. But what does justice mean for that? It means eternal damnation. That's coming, but it's not today. Today, there's an age of grace. Today, there's the opportunity for mercy, and that's what Jesus is giving these Samaritans there. So as we think about how we as Christians and and leaders in this world ought to look at people, we need to understand that we ought to look at it through the lens of the kingdom of God, but in that kingdom, have the lens of mercy, even as we know God is just and will deal justly with all sin. And so we learn from this passage how important it is for us to look at the people. We want to view the kingdom of God through the eyes of Jesus, who is always gracious and kind. He's always gentle and patient. He always is forgiving and true. And he's always welcoming to all kinds of people. We want to do this because the believer's view of the kingdom greatly impacts one's effectiveness with the gospel. And he has called us to be effective with the gospel. Right? You shall be my witnesses, Acts 1.8 says, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We want to be effective with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus models all of this great in a great way. Kingdom leadership is on display in this passage. His focus was always on the people. He saw how each and every individual who came to him, and he looked at them through the emphatic or eyes of empathy. Jesus is the good shepherd, right? Jesus looked at the people and he saw them in their lostness. He saw them like sheep who needs a shepherd because they're just wandering to and fro. And Jesus is the good shepherd, is always calling people to himself. And so the people who were like sheep, who needed a shepherd. They were lonely, they were hungry, they were in danger. And the good shepherd, Jesus, welcomes them. He feeds their souls and he removes the condemnation of their sin. And today as recipients of his glorious grace, may we too look at people all around us through the lens of the kingdom. When's the last time you driving home through your neighborhood and you just began to think about your neighbors in that capacity? That they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're just moseying through this life, trying to make the most of it, but most of the time getting themselves in precarious predicaments, making a mess of their lives. They need a Savior. How many times do we go to work and we view our colleagues like that? Or we gather with our family and our friends and we think about them, not in the, just in the context of what we, can we do together and how can we have fun together, but we see them as Jesus sees them lost and in need of a shepherd. And we work to that end. How many times do we, do we look at our community members? We see them as people who need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's see them as sheep in need of a shepherd. You see, rather than overlooking or even rejecting people who do not look like or act like us, may we see and move toward them. What would our county look like if we as a people, Red Lane Baptist Church, And hopefully the churches in our area, we just began to see people through the eyes of Jesus. And rather than resenting them, loved them and accepted them and embraced them. You say, I don't like their lifestyle. 
doesn't say anything about you liking their lifestyle. I don't like the decisions they've made. I don't like the poor choices that they made. Absolutely. I wouldn't either. But we are not to accept or not accept people based upon their choices that they made. We are to accept them and love them and care for them based upon the fact that they are made in the image and the likeness of God. And that God's affection is on them. Therefore, our affection should be on them. And we're loving them through the gospel. We're seeing them through kingdom eyes. We need to remember that the kingdom is greater than our tribe. And understand that our sister churches all around us are engaging in gospel work. And you say, well, pastor, there's some churches that don't preach the gospel. Absolutely. We're not talking about those churches. We're not talking about those who do not have a gospel. I don't have time to go in and list them and don't want to do that here anyway. I don't care for the fanfare this week if I did that. But there are churches out there who do not preach a gospel. But those who do preach a gospel, but they don't have liturgy like we do, and they don't do things like we do, and our worship doesn't look like us, and they dress different than us, I don't care about anything like that, neither should you, because the Word of God doesn't care about that. You know, we don't fight this battle here, but in my younger years, which was a long time ago, it was a big deal in some of the churches that I've pastored about what a person wore to church. There's no prescription anywhere outside the priest of the Old Testament about what you should wear to church. And so we should never think, well, because they do that and we do this, we can't really do stuff. Are we focusing on the important stuff, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we focusing on the fact that the Bible is the very word of God? It's authoritative. It's inerrant. It's inspired. Yes, and we can partner together. We, We can support one another. We can encourage one another. I'm not the most ecumenical pastor. I'm probably very unecumenical, just because from a stand, time standpoint, it's just hard to do those things. But I, I want to be known as a church, and I want to be known as a Christian and as a pastor who supports and prays for and is concerned about the greater work of the kingdom in our area, rather than just building a kingdom unto ourselves. This is what we know about the kingdom. It is alive and it's active. And so let's celebrate it and let's encourage those who are engaged in it. This morning as a believer, as a member of God's kingdom, here's some questions I want you to ask yourself this morning. What's the Lord saying to you today? What is the Lord saying to you today? Are you actively engaged in kingdom work where you live, work, and play? Or are you so busy like I would probably say most people, that that is really an afterthought for you. That that you may think about it on Sunday mornings when you're here and and you hear the stress, you hear the encouragement, you you hear the push there, that you need to live the gospel where you live, work, and play, those circles that God's given you, those influence areas that God's given you. But when you leave here, that's really kind of out of sight, out of mind, and you don't think about it until you get here. This morning, perhaps the Lord is telling you, you need to spend some time in that area. Get on your face before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm not the witness that I ought to be. I may not be calling fire down from heaven on people to be incinerated, but by by not sharing the gospel, by not loving people, by not being a good, godly gospel witness to others, are you not just perpetuating that? Because they will be incinerated for all of eternity if they don't hear and respond to the gospel by faith, right? Right? Do you see the people who are outside of Christ as sheep in need of a shepherd? If not, if these things are not characteristic of your life, then what you need to do, 
is to get a gospel-centered perspective. Perhaps this morning you're sitting here and you need to come to the king because you're not a sheep who's following the shepherd. You're one of those who are like a sheep in need of a shepherd. You're like these Samaritans in the passage. You're spiritually lost. You're dead in your sin. And so the good news for you is that just like their Samaritans responded to the gospel by faith in Acts chapter 8, you too can turn to Jesus and by faith have your life transformed. And so this morning, as we move to a time of response, as we think about this, this focus to look at others, Christian, how do you need to look at others? How do you need to see the people in those circles that you run in? Your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, your, your kids' team and the parents and the people that you interact with on a regular basis there? You think that's an accident that you're there? Absolutely not. Leverage those things for the kingdom. Leverage those areas for the gospel in your life. So how do you need to respond to that? And then secondly, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, and you're like these Samaritans, I would encourage you this morning, hear the gospel and believe on Jesus through the gospel today. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we are grateful for this picture that we see in these verses in Luke chapter 9. We're grateful for the heart of Jesus that is on display. That he is merciful and kind. He is patient. It surely would have been offensive for, for this village to reject Jesus, not even allow him to, to enter the, the city. I mean, he's Jesus. He's the king of the world. He's the miracle worker, he's done so much good for people, and yet they, they keep him at arm's length. From a human perspective, that would have been deeply offensive, and yet Jesus never was offended. He showed grace, and he showed mercy. And this morning, we understand that we, many times in our life, have held Jesus at an arm's distance. We've not allowed him to come close. We've not responded in faith. In fact, we've done the exact opposite. And yet, the Lord Jesus was gracious and merciful and kind to us. He showed great patience toward us until that day that we responded with a yes. So we thank you for this beautiful picture of the kingdom coming into our lives and how the kingdom can affect others' lives around us. Lord, I pray this morning that we as a church would embrace that, that we would long to see our neighbors and our friends and our family, our colleagues, our classmates, all coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to jump in with both feet into this great kingdom work. What do you need to say to us this morning? What is it that our hearts need to hear? I pray that you would give us faith. I pray you would give us obedience. I pray, God, that you would give us a yearning to move closer to the Lord and closer to the Lord's work in our lives. Father, I pray for those who are in this room listening to us online who have yet to say yes to Jesus. They're still dead in their sins and trespasses, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. God, would you help them this morning to have ears that can hear, a heart that can receive. And today, I pray that you'd give them saving faith, that they would respond to you with a simple yes. Would you bless our time as we respond? Lord, give us freedom, give us clarity, and give us a willingness to say yes, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen. Would you stand? We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.